and listeners. Welcome to this third and last episode of a short series of three interview-only episodes of the Thoughts Hermes podcast, coming to you on April 28, 2019. At the same time, this is also episode 9 of our season 2, and for the reasons you will learn after today's interview, this is the last episode of this season 2. The next show will already be the first of our new season three. And yes, my name is Rudolf. I am your host. Interview only, you probably know it by now, means an episode in which you will hear the usual long interview with our guest, but no other items like feedback, news, book reviews, or music other than the intro and outro music. Therefore, the interview will again be all in one piece, no music break in the middle. I have started to post these episodes also on YouTube, so if you are now listening from YouTube, thanks for already choosing that option. It would be nice if you gave me some feedback, if you like to use that possibility, and if you like to show on YouTube, you know how hard it is to place a new channel there and to make it known. So it would be enormously helpful if you liked the show there. You know that button, like. Thank you. For those who want to give it a try, please do so. But just to remind you, there is no visual, just a fixed background image. Maybe one day, if I dare and have time, I will also do video interviews. Let's see. All the others, please continue to listen on the usual podcast outlets like Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Stitcher, Blueberry, now of course also Spotify and iHeartRadio, to name just a few. And don't forget that you can of course still download or stream the podcast from our website www.thoshermes.com, that is T-H-O. T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com. There is also a place for feedback where you can leave a voice message or a written one through the contact form. And you will find all the show notes on the site. Other possibilities for giving feedback are Facebook or Twitter and YouTube comments. And if you want to subscribe to our free newsletter on the website, we are happy 
if you do that as well. Today's interview guest is a very interesting personality talking about a very interesting topic, too rarely discussed in the occult and esoteric communities, I think, let alone beyond. I speak to a British hypnotherapist and specialist in animal magnetism, Lee Gerard Barlow. I must say that I learned a lot about this fascinating technology, which Lee calls a magico-therapeutic technology. We talk about states of mind, which are very similar to what performing artists need to have on stage. And Lee gives us also nice insight into the history of mesmerism, not forgetting to mention people such as Paracelsus, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, and the infamous Count Cagliostro. And guys, animal magnetism has not much to do with animals, but I'm sure you knew that. Also, Lee tells us how he discovered to what extent spiritualist churches in England have done to preserve magnetism. I didn't even know such a thing like a spiritualist church existed, to be honest. One more word before we start. This interview was already recorded in October 2018, so when Lee speaks about next year and his book and courses then, that means this year, 2019. So go to the show notes to find out more. Now, let us welcome on Thoth Hermes, Lee Gerard Barlow. Here comes the interview. It is a great pleasure for me to welcome on the Thoth Hermi podcast, Lee Gerard Barlow from London. Um, hello, Lee. It's great to finally be able to speak to you. It has been some time. It certainly <laughs> has. Yes, yes, indeed. It has been some time and finally we got together. It's great to have you on here because I think uh, we will have extraordinarily interesting things to talk about. Well, you will have to say oh, a lot sure. of them to our listeners. Um, and just to give a quick glimpse to uh, our audience here, uh, the main topic of our talk today, I would say the main topic, not the exclusive one, will be mesmerism. And that's something I think that within the world of the esoteric and the occult, it is very rarely been talked about. And it is about time that we do something on this show about that subject. But before we go there, Lee, I would like you to introduce yourself a bit to our audience and to to tell us, well, who you are, where you're from, and what brought you to work in the field that you are now working? Well, essentially, um, I became interested in the workings of consciousness itself. And that was quite a, quite a route that got me to that point. Um, I was born in Yorkshire in 1969 and um, grew up there until I finally left, around about 18 years old. Give a hint to our American listeners, which are numerous. Yorkshire, yes. that's in the north of England, isn't it? Yorkshire in the north of England, yes. Um, hence where the, the, the city New York, of course, gets its name from, but uh, <laughs> from, from the capital of Yorkshire. But uh, anyway, yes, so I grew up there in the north of England, Yorkshire, um, in a little village called Aquath, which is an ancient English word, which means oak grove. So the actual village itself was on a moor top, 
And the house I grew up in was a 350-year-old um, coach house um, on the old York to London Road, um, which, to all intents and purposes, uh, the entire village was steeped in local folklore regarding hauntings, all things paranormal. And uh, the corner of my own bedroom, in fact, was literally cornered onto a, onto a well with an oak tree. And um, so I can attest to various strange happenings which would occur through my childhood years um, in that house, uh, which gradually led onto uh, a deeper interest in the subject of the paranormal and um, which never really went away. I, I May I ask you something here? Do you, uh, did you as a child experience those things um, and were they then just normal for you? Did you think that everybody would have that or was it already, were you already aware at the time that this is something special? No, it, well, it wasn't something that I thought was normal as such. Um, everybody who, all of, all of the members of the family experienced it to some level or another. Um, not only just that, but visitors to the house would, uh, sometimes experience things, um, of a similar nature. Um, so there were very odd things that would go on, um, too, too much to go into now. I can't at this point in the interview, start going into any of those things. Otherwise we go sure. off track, but nowhere. <laughs> yeah, by, by all means, I'm just giving you a sort of background. I, I really, my whole idea was to be a musician. And so I did in fact do that. I published various recordings, um, did various bits of production for people of different levels of, uh, of fame. Um, mm -hmm. and after all of this, um, gradually left behind music to move into oppression of hypnotherapy, which was a subject that always interested me. And as I say, that was rooted in a, an interest in consciousness itself. Um, because I experienced, uh, on long distance treks, which was a a long, long time hobby of mine. I experienced many states of consciousness, shifts in consciousness, um, while walking over long distance tracks, such as the coast to coast walk, which crosses the entire width of England from the, I, I walked from the West coast to the East coast. And as a result of that, yeah, I started to experience some other quite strange things to do with my perceptual awareness while doing things like walking long distance, passing through various sacred sites, um, and became very sensitized to energy in general. So it wasn't just the states of consciousness themselves. Um, it was also the fact that this was accompanied by shifts in physical sensation. This was in fact, um, very much a basis for what comes later with my work with magnetism. So, but did you professionally train as a musician first or was that more or less a, a, a big hobby of yours or did you, did you really want to no. do that professionally? I'm asking yeah, for a specific yeah, reason. Music was, <laughs> music was very much, uh, my passion in the past and I did many public performances. Mm -hmm. Um, I very much loved the entire 
state again, once again, the entire state of consciousness that I would get into um, when I would be spending mm-hmm. time recording in the recording studio, which was a very, for me, a very, very uh, important uh, environment. It's where I would, where I would mm-hmm. go into, into very special states um, to achieve some of the things that I did on my recordings. Um, also the same in public performance. You, you become very aware of, you become very aware of, of, of the feeling of the audience, of the, of the other people that you're working with. It's very much an energetic yes. thing. There's a real connection there. Again, this is very connected yeah. to what I do with animal magnetism, otherwise known as mesmerism. Yeah, this is exactly why I was asking, because as you might know, I'm also, uh, my background is also in the performing arts, also with ah, music and stage. Right. And yeah. um, when you were mentioning energy levels and energy in general, this is one of my favorite subjects also in the in the field of the, esoter- of the esoteric and the occult, uh, not just the one we're talking about today. So I was wondering Indeed. if you, if, if that's from the very beginning, created a link the stage work you did created a link to what we're going to talk uh, about in a few minutes yeah well in in actual fact if we stare it right in the face it's inseparable yeah. um you know um performance is is an ancient is an extension of ancient mystery traditions itself to actually be there on stage performing in front of an audience is no different from what they were doing in the ancient amphitheaters, for example, in uh, ancient Greece, perhaps back in ancient Egypt, in Rome. Um, There was a definite connection between the performance itself, Mm -hmm. uh, the vibration of the words, the, uh, the, the, the ability for the performer to be able to be acutely aware of the, the, feedback from the audience itself, not just from the entire crowd at once, but also individual members of the audience, which is something that's very important to performers on stage. Mm. You sometimes start with small, uh, you sometimes start with uh, attention on one particular individual or two or three individuals, and then you move it around um, the audience uh, until you spill it out to the entire crowd. So there's a feedback also. It's not just that you're aware of their energy and their attention, but you also have the ability to send it back. And this is where we get into, as you, as you stated, you know, magical performance, magical ritual. It's inseparable. And to modify the state of individuals or the audience as a whole when you are performing. Absolutely. Yeah. This is absolutely correct. And so yeah. to, what I understood very much as a performer was that there was a direct link between my internal state of consciousness, my internal state um, through solitary work, you know, either solitary ritual or, or through solitary states that you get in through long distance walking where you're walking on your own for many days, um, more in a hermit-like state but immersed in nature. Once that you've actually uh, experienced these things and then you do very extroverted um, forms of uh, attention, paying attention to the, the each and every moment. When you're doing the extroverted forms, you're working in such things as public performance. When you're working in public performance, you uh, understand that there is a cross flow between the energy you generate on the interior and how that can be passed out into the into the public, and also how how the energy 
the fact that you you yourself are a point of focus for them, you understand that there is an, an energy coming back to you. So you become a bit like the juggler in the tarot. <laughs> yeah. You become the you become the, uh, the the you begin begin to understand the relationship of how to balance and how to send and receive energy from the interior and and the exterior. Absolutely, no, I completely agree with that, and I find it fascinating what you're saying. So, but in a way that brings us further and closer to our subject of today, because we kind of are already, if I'm not wrong, a bit in the middle of it. Um, <laughs> but just to, to focus back on your on your life a little bit more again, uh, um, so that told us about your background, your youth, your childhood, so to yeah. speak. Um, so at some point you then moved to London, I guess. And and yes. what what is actually happening to you today what what what's your occupation or how would you how would you describe yourself to somebody who you meet for the first time and who you would like to explain what you're doing it's an interesting thing yeah um i i usually um if 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 i meet somebody completely random and they ask me what i do i tell them that i'm a hypnotherapist which is what I am. I'm trained as a clinical hypnotherapist mm -hmm. and I have clients. Um, on this basis, I can just do the basic hypnotherapeutic work, which is what I would call standard hypnosis. Um, but of course, the history of that hypnosis is very much rooted in uh, in animal magnetism itself. When I, when I use the term animal magnetism, I'm talking about the tradition of mesmerism, of course, okay. because Franz Anton Mesmer, the man who was around in the uh, mid to late 1700s, um, was the person who popularized the term mesmerism uh, as a result of his own work. And so it became known as this through him. Um, but it was already something which was very much around And this, this form was around very much known under the name of animal magnetism. And of course, this is not something that somebody would be able to invent, but he probably described it and maybe systemized it, but we are going to, going to talk about that. But so mesmerism is the name because he was maybe the most famous person at his time who, who propagated it, who used it. Am I correct? Yeah, I mean, famous or infamous, infamous depending, yes. upon your, <laughs> depending upon your point of view. Um, sure. Only infamous, only infamous, because of the fact that he was so derided by the medics of his time. Of course, um, you know. So, I mean, there's various films, Hollywood-style films, that are around, such as the one with Alan Rickman in. And in there, you know, you see Mesmer pretty much depicted as, as a bit of a joke, you know, yeah. a bit, bit, of a char bit of a charlatan and yeah. so on and so on. But of course, there were other people around in his age, in his time, such as the legendary Count Cagliostro, for example, yeah. um, who equally was, was one who was using animal magnetism very much at the time that he was around. Mm -hmm. He was contemporary with Mesmer with as Mesmer, well. Yeah. And they... Yes. Yeah. But let's go back to you at the moment. Um, because you said being infamous, um, honestly, Lee, when you talk to people who have never met you and you, are, you say you're a hypnotherapist, um, yes. the general, I mean, a clinical hypnotherapist, I'm not talking yeah. about uh, yeah. animal magnetism now, um, yeah. even though it's linked, of course, but uh, a clinical hypnotherapist, are 
the majority of people reacting, oh, yes, uh, I like that. Or are they, hmm, and what is he really doing? You know, what? Um, I don't know what, what it's like in your country. I'm in Austria, as you know, and as most of our listeners know. I would assume that the, re the popular reaction to a hypnotherapist is uh, one of doubt. Do you experience that as well, or is it is it different? It's an interesting thing, again, because really, um, I don't think, certainly the way I approach this, um, I don't look at things from the point of view of what would be the ordinary popular uh, perception mm -hmm. of this thing. I just come from a position of being very honest about where I'm coming from as an individual um, and project that to whoever I'm working with. The only instance where I, so for example, I do courses where I teach people um, animal magnetism, the techniques of animal magnetism in a very direct manner. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have no, uh, I don't hold anything back from uh, letting that be known to the general public that I put on these courses. Uh, I mean, right now, you know, I'm doing an interview where I'm speaking about uh, the fact that I am I'm involved in these things. Sure. Um, but when it comes to clinical hypnosis, in a way, I use that as a secondary. My main thing is my work with animal magnetism mm -hmm. um, and also teaching the techniques of animal magnetism because it's an experiential thing and it's something which um, not, not many people are doing. So as a result of this, um, it does give a little bit of a sort of edge um, where you don't get lost in the miasma of, of thousands of other hypnotherapists. Now, hypnotherapy itself is, even though it's a very serious um, subject and people give, all, give their all to it and they're very serious about using it most of the time, um, it's still a subject which many hypnotherapists, standard hypnotherapists, I mean, are struggling against public perception. Mm. Because, I thought, because I knew that this was already the case with standard hypnotherapy, and even standard hypnotherapy can sometimes be derided or ridiculed in some way, I thought, well, why not go the whole way? You know, why not um, literally teach people the techniques of magnetism itself And my approach to that has been quite well received over here so far. I get people coming from all over the world to come to my courses. I mean, even on the, even on the last one that I did just a couple of months ago here in England, um, I had people coming from Japan, uh, had someone coming from Sri Lanka. Um, I have people coming from, I mean, quite literally from the USA. Mm -hmm. I have people coming from every part of the world. Uh, so it kind of works quite well. Interesting. Um, I think there must not be too many teachers around, would there? Well, you see, this is the thing. And there are also people who are indeed doing standard hypnotherapy, clinical hypnotherapy, and sometimes even stage hypnosis, mm -hmm. who come along on my courses. And I make it very clear to them that What they'll be learning on my courses is something that they can that will be very useful because they can add it to what they already know. Mm -hmm. They're learning a different attitude towards 
essentially the same thing because the thing they're already practicing is rooted in this older technique that that I'm teaching myself. Yeah. I think now the time has come in this interview that you have to explain um, or give us a definition of animal magnetism, um, <laughs> where it initially comes from, and also how did you stumble upon it? I mean, we got your background and you were open to those things, but yes. I, I gather at some point in your life you you found it and and you you said, oh, that's something I would like to learn and maybe then teach. Sure. Um, well, what actually happened was I was um, already studying clinical hypno hypnosis. And before that, I also um, took my master's in neuro-linguistic programming. So my first commercial venture, if you like, into studying these subjects was first of all through NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. Um, for, I'm pretty sure it's very well known, but just for the record, I'll I'll just say here that Neuro Linguistic Programming uh, was something created by uh, Dr. Richard Bandler and uh, Jean Grinder. Yeah. And they were doing all of this research back in the 1970s, and they very much popularized it in the 1980s, where it's a kind of hyper-packaged, um, synthesis of lots of different types of therapies, but essentially all the best hypnotherapeutic techniques of various hypnosis masters rolled into this hyper-packaged version, including other things like Adlerian and um, uh, Virginia Satir uh, techniques, uh, family therapy, and things like this, uh, all rolled into this NLP technique. So I went through. I went through that. Um, and then I moved into researching the backgrounds of the hypnotherapeutic techniques that they were using in NLP. So I wanted to learn more about the classical hypnotherapeutic NL, uh, NLP, um, hypnotherapeutic techniques. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that. So this is all about, you know, 12 years or so ago. Um, and then, and then I started to do the clinical hypnosis. So while I was studying the clinical hypnosis, I started to look more into the older history of hypnosis itself. And that um, was where I started to find more and more about Franz Anton Mesmer. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a sort of kind of synchronous event to this, um, I met a, a gentleman over in London um, at a meeting, at a convention, and he said to me, I study, uh, I, I myself, uh, I'm a student of and uh, study and teach um, animal magnetism. And I thought, well, that's just uh, what, what an incredibly synchronous and fortuitous meeting. You know? <laughs> and uh, he invited me over to France and um, we started to work over there. And this is uh, Dr. Perrette over in, in Nice who also comes from Italy. He, he's actually Italian. So I worked with him. I worked with him for some time. And um, he, he sort of got me in as a, as a sidekick. So we were working for, we were, we were sort of working together for a good couple of years uh, where I was learning all of the techniques, et cetera, et cetera. And um, 
I started to teach over after that, started to teach over in England. Right. So that was the that was the path uh, that I took regarding my 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 teaching of magnetism. Right, but now I still want to nail you down on the term animal magnetism. How would you okay. explain to a newcomer um, into that world of hypnotherapy what is to you animal magnetism? Right, animal magnetism is a force that exists within all sentient living creatures. Um, and essentially, uh, as, as the name itself seems to suggest, you know, animal magnetism, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a kind of um, force which is very strong within the animal kingdom itself. You, you see it very evidently displayed in, uh, say, for example, the way that lions look at their prey, the way that snakes also um, look at their prey mm. and the states that the animals themselves must be in while they're in incredibly heightened states of awareness. Yeah. So it's, it's the development of that awareness in oneself in each and every moment that enables you to be able to have the effect that you wish to have upon the subject that you're working mm. with. Mm -hmm. Now, in NLP, that's a, a condition that they would call uptime, right? a heightened state of awareness. But they don't um, teach it in a way where they teach the method of how to be inside that state of awareness and be completely aware of it while you're in it. It's a kind of peculiar thing. Yeah. This is something that we do teach and that I do teach on my courses. It's the essential backbone of the technique is learning how to maintain and how to actually even promote that state inside yourself to be able to get the effects that you need. Let me ask you a question here. Um, there is something sportsmen, for example, sometimes call that flow. Yes, um, yeah. Or also stage people, actually. Um, is that... Yes. Is that the same kind of approach or is this flow thing something completely different? Right. Okay. Um, I think the problem is, is that when, te okay, every performer or sports person, and we've spoken about stage performance and things like this, every performer and every, um, every person who's doing anything whatsoever, it could be, you know, um, public speaker uh, or whatever, knows that they experience moments of peak performance. There are moments when you know that everything is in alignment and everything. And as you say, they use the word flow. The mm -hmm. problem with that, the problem with that really is the fact that it's, it's quite abstracted. Although people who are performers have the advantage of knowing what that experience is, most ordinary people who come to learn these techniques don't actually really know what that might be they may have other examples in their life you know where they were great at football and they had uh, scored a few great goals or something but mm -hmm. or, or many other examples in their lives but i think performers have a more heightened uh, experience of this that they can call upon um because they're doing things under improbable conditions uh they're working against many factors that to other people seem uncontrollable. 
Uh, and there's a certain sort of Taoistic or, or Zen-like state. You have to enter into a sort of Taoistic state to actually experience, as we've said before in the earlier part of the interview, experience this cross-flow between the, in, the inner and the outer. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. the problem is, all of that's fine. The problem is, how do you enter into it at will? How yeah. do you replicate it at will? This is the question. And this is the thing that many people don't teach. They don't teach you how to do that. Right, right. Honestly, I mean, I have, of course, uh, prepared a bit for this interview. So I'm mm. a bit aware of uh, how you're saying that and how you're going to, to, to tell us that and what mm. animal magnetism actually is. And um, But I was so insisting that you would explain it here because I, well, a few weeks ago before I first looked into it, even though I'm well, I'm quite around in the occult worlds, etc. Mm. I had a completely wrong imagination of what mesmerism and animal magnetism actually means and is. To me, yes. it was much more uh, uh, influencing your energy flow um, in order to heal or, you know, oh, yes. more like, uh, it is that as well. But I, I was not aware of that of that active approach that you were just mentioning now you know and ah. i think that's maybe you have re this is, there is reason why this is like that but or you have an explanation why that the passive the passive side seems to be heard about right the mm -hmm. active use of magnetism uh, is something that i have the impression is not very well known. Am I right? Or, or what would you say differently? You, you are absolutely right. And the thing is, is that obviously, you know, the, well, the, the, the usual impression that you find with hypnosis and, okay, let's stick to animal magnetism, the use of mesmerism, the usual impression people have is that somebody is standing there, look into my eyes, waving their hands around in front of your face doing what are called long passes from the top of the head right through down the body over and over again to induce state in the individual that you're working with. Now, the, the common impression is that the practitioner is working in this manner that I've just described, and the subject is entering into an incredibly passive condition. That's mm -hmm. the common impression. Well, on some level, at least, But to begin with, that is true in the sense that um, you yourself have to create an excess of charge uh, within yourself. But this can only be done through that active internal work. There's a certain yourself meaning you as the US, you as the US, practitioner, you, the practitioner. Yes, exactly. You as the practitioner have to develop these incredibly actively aware states of consciousness. So you're, you're, yeah. you're in the moment being extremely aware of where you are, what you're feeling, all of these little details and doing it to literally doing it to the max. You know, you're not playing at it. You're absolutely placing yourself in that state to the max. Yeah. And, yeah. and then to such a level where to the person who is within your proximity, they cannot deny that on some level at least they feel a shift in their 
consciousness or a shift in their awareness or mm-hmm. a shift in their in the state they were in previously is not the state they're entering into now. As a result, as a result of this, this fits the very definition of what even in standard hypnotherapy, they call the actual definition of hypnosis of the hypnotic state, which is quite simply an altered state of awareness. So the individual who is technically hypnotized, they teach you this in clinical hypnotism, is entering into an altered state of awareness. Now, of course, we can take that in any direction we want. You know, you could say that you're in an altered state of awareness 10 minutes after you've woken up and you've sat down and had your first cup of coffee, you're entering into an altered state of awareness. Now, this is true because you are, uh, and when you go onto the subway and go onto onto the metro or something like this, there's a diff, if you look around, people are in a different state to where yeah. when they're walking around in the outside, walking around in, 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 on the street, for example. Um, th- there's a sort of closure of awareness. It's not just the physical surroundings that are drawing them into a closed state. Um, you can see it in their body language. You can see it uh, even in the way people begin to think. They think in a more insular type of way. Mm-hmm. The same thing happens when we have the changes in the seasons. As the as the as, as we come to the end of the year and we're we're coming into autumn, like what we're doing now, the the sky is more commonly overcast, and this is so people become more introverted. Uh, yeah. You know, by nature, they become more introverted. Nature itself, you look around, it's it's it becomes introverted. Sure. So. Collectively, our states of awareness shift as we move through the four seasons. And environmentally, our consciousness shifts uh, as we move from one condition to another. So uh, when you, I don't know if I'm going slightly off track here, but I'm going with my own flow, so to speak. No, no, the, nothing is off track in thought thermies. Yeah, good, good. Um, what, what, what I'm saying is, is once you've started to see these things and the way they work on your own individual consciousness, which is very much what I was talking about earlier in the interview when I was doing long distance walking over England and things like this, you mm. begin to become aware that the inside, uh, sorry, that the external has a direct impact upon the internal state. And right. that, and that, um, you become aware of the things which affect the matrix of your own uh, internal perception, and that somehow it, it's not it's not an absolute. It can be changed. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things that animal magnetism can teach the subject is that once they've experienced the states that they can enter into, they actually find it very pleasant. They find it's a really good place to go to. And it makes them more aware of themselves and makes them more aware of the imbalances that are existing within their own biosystem. And because of this, they can learn how to, they can, in a very short space of time, begin to learn how to scan their own internal world, not just on the mental plane, but on the, on the physical plane as well, and in terms of their emotions and their feelings. 
So when you start as a practitioner, you're the practitioner and you have the subject. When you start the work upon your subject, you start from a very active place. But what actually starts to happen as you go through the session is gradually you as the practitioner move out of that state of um, directive, of out of the directive state, and you gradually become open to a cross flow. That's what I was saying about the performance elements before how a performer works with their audience. You become mm-hmm. aware of the cross flow and a kind of lemniscat of energy forms between you and the individual. And there's a right. sort of balance that takes place. Mm-hmm. Then it's no longer a question of the fact that you're just the one influencing the procedure. You just use that as a technique to be able to move them uh, into the state that you need them to be in for their own therapeutic healing. That's fascinating. That explains to me, Lee, actually, uh, why most people might have only the impression that hypnosis, magnetism, whatever you call it, is a passive thing. Because probably 95% of, of people who have seen on tele- television or on the stage live or whatever, uh, a magnetist or a hypnotist, they have only come so far as seen something that was a passive approach for the client, uh, uh, so to say, and it has never gone as far because that's not being done on a stage to get the interaction between both ends. Uh, uh, That's the impression that I get. Yes, I, I I would definitely agree with that. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I really would like to point out that you were saying, you were talking about your personal background at the very beginning and living in a place which was a bit haunted. And also <laughs> that you are that you are um, aware of, in, in your work nowadays, you're aware of the environment you're in, you're in, aware of the, 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 the situation you're in, even the history, maybe the place that you're in um, has. And... I think that's that's something that magic in general should do. And that's something that magic in general is, at least in the 21st century, often omitted because people are not aware enough of the backgrounds and of the history um, of the place and of the, the situation they are in. And that if they were, that would probably be helpful to their own magic. And and to what you were doing. Would you agree? I, I absolutely would, yes. Um, I think really, to be honest with you, uh, you know, some people would also say that, uh, and this is why perhaps some people have to be careful when they're working certain traditions that are out of context, maybe, you know, uh, or, or they're trying to impose a tradition on somewhere that has no relationship to to that tradition um, in terms of environment I'm talking you know so for example somewhere might have a very strong uh, vibration which has been set in place um, through history you might even say you know spiritus loci that type of thing mm-hmm. places have already have a, a kind of um, for want of a better word an astral stamp if you like upon uh, upon the energy of that place, which can either be, uh, which can in some instances be drawn upon for use. Um, and uh, perhaps some people work traditions uh, or, or some works, work certain types of magic um, 
in places where the astral stamp is actually stronger than the tradition they're working. Um, this is just food for thought. I'm not being absolutely definitive about it, but I'm, I'm just saying along the basis of what you're, of what you're saying there, this is what it makes me yeah. think about. That's extremely fascinating and could be the subject of another interview in another oh, podcast. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, we are, oh, yes. We are, we are really now getting not off track, but in, in other waters, let's put it that way. Totally, totally. Um, so let me take the, the red line up again. We were talking about history, historical yeah. facts. Yeah. Maybe this is the moment, a perfect link, <laughs> this is mm -hmm. the moment to, to talk about the history of uh, of mesmerism as such, because we were mentioning Mr. Mesmer, you were mentioning Mr. Yeah. Mesmer a bit earlier. Talk a bit more about him and let our people know um, what who he was and how it all happened at the time. Well, really, um, personally, I, I don't have uh, that much personal interest in who exactly Mesmer was. I'm more interested in the fact that he even used this technique, um, the fact that he popularized this technique, and the fact that he was a very important part of this line, so to speak. So for me personally, what I'll do is I'll go back to really the forefather of the most significant figure, if you like, um, of the basis of what became animal magnetism. I have a right. few more, a few more things to say that go further back than this figure a little later, if we get onto that subject, but I'm going to talk, I'm, sure, yeah. I'm going to talk quickly about Paracelsus. So mm -hmm. of course, Paracelsus, very well known. Um, he was around sort of his height around about 1541. And from him, we, these days, Uh, have to thank for such things as homeopathy, which is very prevalent in the, in the day we're living in. Um, mm. But what happened was, is after Paracelsus's work, there was a lot in Paracelsus's work that gave influence for what later became animal magnetism. Uh, around about 1671, there was a Uh, a guy called Maxwell who released a book called De Medicina Magnetica, the magnetic medicine. So you could ask maybe a little later what, what we mean by magnetism exactly. Why are we using this, uh, this term? Well, okay, I'll say now, basically, even in Paracelsus's work, we have the magnesia. We have the, uh, the fluidum, which, which is, if you like, the azoth, the basis behind all phenomenal existence. Which, is, uh, which can be imprinted upon. And as soon as anything is, as soon as any idea is formed within this formless chaos, um, it, it immediately takes on a polarization because one of the laws of nature is that everything has two poles, <laughs> so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so you have this formlessness. Uh, and so the idea, the, the very thing of, ideas themselves, um, they are formed within this infinite potentia. And uh, as soon as an idea is thrown, within, thrown into the matrix of this infinite potentia, you have uh, something which disturbs that fluidum 
and as a result forms two poles, you immediately, even at that pure ideological level, you have uh, the, the, the notion of polarity taking place. Of course, for those familiar with the Kabbalistic tree of life, et cetera, et cetera, you have the, the, the various levels of the four worlds and how it permeates down to what we, what we ultimately call the manifested world. Yeah. Um, I mention all of these things because in fact, they're inseparable, um, from the subject of animal magnetism. It wasn't that Mesmer just came along out of nowhere. He was drawing upon a tradition and that tradition was essentially hermetic. It was already extant. He was the one who, to us, to an extent popularized it or made some of it palatable enough for people to be interested in it in a practical way. Now, Paracelsus was very much about healing, of course. He was a physician. He was interested in healing. So what eventually became uh, magnetism was very much uh, an extension of the original Paracelsian ideas, which, as I say, went through Maxwell in his Medicina Magnetica. Mm-hmm. And then around about um, 1768, uh, there was a meeting between Mesmer and Mozart, apparently, because, uh, you know, Mozart was particularly interested also in uh, animal magnetism. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in 1779, Mesmer published a work called The Memoir sur la découverte de, uh, probably terrible French, découverte du magnetisme animal. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so basically the, the, the memoirs on the discovery of the animal magnetism. And it, when it was around about this time that he started to publish his work and it became solidified, concretized for history. Um, and those works, that work is still, uh, can still be found if you search hard enough for it. Mm-hmm. Um, after this, after Mesmer died and he did all of the work that he did, um, it then split into three different types, into three different expressions, because there were those who worked along the therapeutic branch and those who started working through the therapeutic branch. This became an influence eventually through a traveling mesmerist called Charles the Fontaine, mm-hmm. who, who uh, James Braid, around about 1841, he was the guy, he was a Scotsman, but he was living in Manchester and he was a physician himself. He was particularly interested in, um, he, he was an ophthalmist actually. He was working mainly with, uh, with the ophthalmic tradition. And um, he was the one who saw the traveling mesmerist Charles La Fontaine performing animal magnetism. And of course, Charles La Fontaine was doing it in the traditional way with great belief in this essential component, which comes from uh, the work of Mesmer himself, which was the fluidum. Uh, his belief in this concept, the fluidum, uh, was the thing that got him laughed out of court by the physicians of his day. Mm-hmm. Um, he believed that there was a there was a fluid that could be transmitted from the practitioner to the subject, and it had a kind of magnetic nature to it. Well, in actual fact, I've just described 
what that fluidum might be. When I was talking about uh, the work of Paracelsus and some of the ideas that Paracelsus had mm-hmm. uh, about the idea that 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 fluidum can be somehow imprinted with the will of the practitioner, right? And that so so the very the very idea of the practitioner passing on their will like a current of will coming forth from the practitioner to the subject. It's exactly the same technique that we use to charge talismans, for example. I mean, the, the charging of talismans is exactly the same uh, sure. notion. So in, in other traditions, they might call it telesma or something like this. It's basically the same thing. It's the same idea. Yeah. Um, this all comes from the work of Paracelsus. I mean, even, even the charging and talismus, all of these things comes from the, the roots in Paracelsian work. Um, so Charles, uh, sorry, James Braid saw Charles de Fontaine performing all of these things with great belief, but because he was, um, an ophthalmist and he was just a basic, you know, down to earth guy in England, he saw this Frenchman and just said, well, I'll reduce it down to its essential components. Um, when he's waving his hands in front of the eyes of the, uh, of the subjects, he's obviously tiring their eyes. He's mm-hmm. making them feel very tired. Mm-hmm. Um, if they have to keep straining their eye muscles with their neck bent backwards, then surely they're going to feel very, very tired and sleepy. <laughs> right. um, so there was always this reductionist kind of way of explaining away uh, the effects of animal medicine, because clearly the effects were taking place. People were indeed going into altered states and they were going into what might be called classical trance. Right. But the thing is, is he was there saying, oh, but it's only because of this. It's only, it's clearly because of this, you know, so he would reduce it down as a scientist would, reduces it down to some basic working formulas. Mm-hmm. Once he'd, and, and this is devoid of any belief in energy or any of these types of things. Once he'd done this, um, he then decided to give it a name. So he coined it hypnotism. So it was James Braid who actually came out with this term hypnotism for the first oh, time. Really? Okay. Yes. And this was, like I say, around about the late 1800s, 1841. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's from Braid's work that uh, it ended up being taken into, you know, started being used, and it's been loosely used ever since then, then, uh, you know, in various places um, in the medical profession. Some believe in it, some don't believe in it. Um, And it's been used loosely in that way. More, it entered more back into, um, into Europe, where people like Shaco, uh, Charcot um, started to use it, and he was the guy who trained Sigmund Freud in how to use uh, hypnotic techniques. But Sigmund Freud, of course, um, threw away his use of hypnosis because he wasn't getting the results he wanted and preferred to go in the direction of word association. Yes. Mm-hmm. But he did indeed train him um, in these techniques. I do believe that quite possibly Carl. Carl Jung as well may have uh, may have been taught at least some of the techniques. Um, it would it would fit it would fit though. I would be a good fit. I think it would be it would be a good fit. And I and I think he certainly 
would have also, uh, as far as I understand, Carl Jung, as we know, was very, very interested in alchemy, very interested in Gnosticism, very interested in Hermeticism. So exactly. as a result, as a result of this, um, I think he was exposed to some of this through uh, exposure to the things which were very much trending in the, on the continent at that time, such as the use of hypnosis through Charcot. And it was people like Charcot were actually very familiar with the concepts of animal magnetism as well, because it right. formed a very strong basis of what their work was. In England, we had people like Dr. Elliotson and uh, Esdale, and they were the ones who were pretty much... Uh, you know, promoting the use of animal magnetism in England, and so much so that Dr. Elliotson was even using it in the hospitals. The the actual University College Hospital here in London uh, was was actually he was one of the founders of that hospital, and he used it extensively. And in fact, if you go on the internet and you look up Dr. Elliotson and you look up the, a magazine called The Zoist. There are many, many, many copies of his journal called The Zoist, which appear on the internet, where you get in-depth accounts of him using his techniques mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, on many, many different patients. Even he got kicked out of his own uh, <laughs> out of his own <laughs> place. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, he didn't last very long either, uh, really. In any case, so that that took on the through the work of um, James Braid, that became the basis of what we now understand to be the more straightforward forms of hypnosis. When we think of clinical hypnosis, when we think of uh, therapeutic hypnosis, that was very much James James Braid's reductionism that caused that um, trend towards the use of hypnosis debunking, you know, with, without leaving behind all of the energetic side of things. Mm -hmm. So I talk about one stream there. Okay. The other stream was very much, um, the psycho, what we call the psychofluidists. Now the psychofluidists had more of a, a, an idea of the use of will, the use of the promotion of will. They, it was more of a, it was more of a, a magical approach mm -hmm. to this. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, funnily enough, um, there was a there was a guy called uh, Puisiger who was a direct student of uh, Mesmer, mm -hmm. and Puisiger uh, formed very much part of the psychofluidist movement, what was called the psychofluidist movement, where he believed very much in this idea of using the will to imprint upon this fluidum. And, uh, and it was this form of animal magnetism that was mainly accepted in Germany. So when it started being passed through Germany, through uh, the work of Puisiger, it then started to have a big influence on other people like uh, Schelling, uh, Fichte, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Hegel, and, and Schopenhauer. Mm -hmm. Now, Schopenhauer then, uh, you know, wrote a book, which I forget what the title is, but it had a chapter in it called On the Will in Nature. Mm -hmm. And that was very much influenced by the work of Puisiger, uh, the way that uh, the Puisigerian aspect of pushing that notion of the will and how it can affect this 
substratum that can then permeate the world we live in and cause changes. You know, some right. people may even say that that's very aligned to some sort of almost Crowleyan ideas, you know, the idea of causing <laughs> yeah, change yeah. to occur in nature with, with the will. It's very mm-hmm. similar to that in some ways. So then you have, um, interestingly enough, through these people, Boer, um, Schopenhauer, and then into the into the modern day, Sch- Sch- Schrodinger was also influenced. Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, by these ideas. So then we get the whole idea, if you start to look into some of the things that the quantum, the, the origins of uh, quantum physics, quantum mechanics, you start to see the, the hallmarks and you trace them back all the way back. And if you go back into Paracelsus and compare what was being said th- uh, through the works of uh, Schrodinger, through the works of uh, Schopenhauer, et cetera, et cetera, you see the hallmarks of the old Paracelsian ideas, mm-hmm. which then form the, uh, the basis of quantum physics. Very interesting. Which have, which have passed through the magnetic tradition. So the magnetic tradition was in a way making use, a practical use. So in that sense, you might say it's almost a magical thing. It's a magico-therapeutic technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there we have it. Great. That brings me to, uh, to, to one question that's on my mind now for 20 minutes and I must not lose it. Mm. When you find animal magnetism, you took it from, from animal, from yes. animating, I would think, right? Um, uh, everything that's animated has that energy or that fluid or whatever you call it. Um, mm. Does that include in, well, let's say in your mind, because that's what counts here, uh, vegetables, <laughs> do they also have that energy or is it, yes. is, uh, is it only animals and, and humans, so to speak? It's in all the three kingdoms of nature. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I thought so, but I wasn't sure. Mm? I mean, even though uh, obviously the mineral uh, part of the of the kingdom appears not to be animated, but for those yeah. who have an interest in these things, um, there are ways to animate that mineral kingdom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, um, you know, so the, the, the so therefore that once again, you know, Paracelsus was the forefather of what we understand to be alchemy. So through the work of, uh, of the alchemists, um, yeah. you know, you can also begin to understand that in actual fact, animal magnetism is a form of alchemy as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a form of internal alchemy. Then there was one, I must not forget this. I, I did say it split into three streams, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, once that Mesmer had died, the tradition split into three streams. The third stream was the more spiritualistic stream of animal magnetism, which um, was very much went th- very much went through France and uh, formed the basis uh, of the work. Uh, it, it survived and was practiced in societies that were under the patronage of uh, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin and people like this, Martinez Pasquale. Um, And it ended up 
uh, also forming the basis of the work of people like uh, Alan Kardec, who, who came later, and he became very well known. And, and in actual fact, that formed very much the basis of what we see in England. If you go up to the north of England, it's interesting because I was called upon to, to teach mm-hmm. um, a group of ladies who uh, were part of a, a spiritualist church up in the north of England. And I was very surprised. And they were very curious about uh, animal magnetism because they wanted to understand what, what exactly I was doing. And they were very, very happy and very grateful that uh, I went ahead and spent a couple of days teaching them this stuff. Um, but what I learned from them is that there were incru- many parallels between what they were doing in the spiritualist churches for what they might call inductions of some kind to open themselves to communication. Um, and I, I became very aware of the fact that the magnetic tradition had indeed, uh, to in a fairly intact manner, had indeed survived, even in England, but through the spiritualist churches, which I found really quite fascinating. That is fascinating. And, and, and if we trace the lines, as I've just said, it went through certain underground streams in France, uh, and Germany through these traditions I've just spoken about. And what about Franz Bardon? I mean, he clearly talks about the magnet as well when he talks about the four element. Yeah, absolutely. His hermetic approach is very much, to me, influenced by that, at least terminology. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, Lee, this is fascinating. Um, uh, I'm afraid we are already at the end of our hour, but this definitely calls for more at some other point. For the anecdote, you were mentioning Mozart at some point. And of yeah. course, um, there is that little scene, I'm not, I'm not sure if you're aware of that, in, in his opera, Così Van Tutte, ah. where he pays kind of tribute to Mesmer um, ah. because because he, he brings in at the end... Uh, well, that comic figure, but it's it's meant nicely. It's not meant yes. uh, as a, um, with a big magnets to revive those two <laughs> gentlemen who have who have killed themselves because of the women who were they were in love with. So that's 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 a funny story. But it is said that he has done that because there's no proof for that. But that Mesmer, who at the time lived and worked in Vienna, um, had paid for a performance of his Bastien Bastien. Um, and it in kind of to pay tribute to that, uh, uh, Mozart is said to have put the mesmerizing uh, 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 magnet into his opera, Cosi Vantute. So just oh. a little story. Yeah. How lovely. <laughs> <laughs> well, to wrap it up, Lee, um, is there anything we should be aware of coming up on your tablets? I mean, um, maybe... It would be a good idea at some point to write the book about those stories and about the whole background, or uh, wouldn't that be something you should do? Well, absolutely, of course. Um, I actually have three books in the pipeline. Um, one of them accompanies my work at the British Museum. Um, I do regular tours at the British Museum for those who we'll don't talk know. In, another, in another show soon. Yep. So stay, stay Absol- tuned for abs- that. Absolutely. So there is, uh, there is that. There's a book which accompanies that. Um, there is a book which uh, accompanies the more hermetic sides of um, uh, the tarot, the tree of life and uh, various attributions and so on. It's 
talk about that some other time. And then there's another work, which is more focused on everything I've been talking to you about here, more about the, the history itself of uh, animal magnetism and its roots in ancient history. Wow, great. Any any timeline for that already or is it too, too soon? I'm hoping that that will be together by that particular book um, will be, the one on the British Museum, I mean, will, will be uh, ready for the springtime. I'm aiming right. at getting that ready for the springtime. Right. Um, so in any case, uh, our listeners should be aware of that because uh, it will be announced here and probably reviewed here once it's out. So. I also also must I also must say um, for the record as well. Next year there will be a an intensive, highly uh, experiential intensive. Um, I, I put on courses once or twice a year, as people people know. I usually put them on in London. We just did one a couple of months ago, um, but there will be a special course which will take place in France in the Auvergne in Massive Central, um, in the mountains of central France. Um, that will be um, somewhere in the region of, I think, about eight to ten days, this particular one. And it will cover everything in the magnetic tradition, the actual techniques, everything, and also show how it relates to all of the hermetic traditions, um, various practices, various meditations of a very experiential nature to to make sure that each person has something to take away that they can use for the rest of their lives as a, as a basis to be able to build their work upon. Um, that will be happening in the, in the last two weeks of uh, August. Uh, the actual dates are not fixed yet, but just to let everybody know that those, they, this will be taking place in the last two weeks of August next year, 2019. And uh, I'm sure that you will also announce on your website with it. Yeah, so that will be on arcanaevents.com, the same place that you can yeah. find uh, the British Museum tours. Um, yeah. And also I have another website for the therapeutic side of things, arcanatherapies.com. Yes, and I make sure to put those on the on the web on my website of Thoth Hermes on the relevant page with this interview so that everybody on the show notes will be able to find you and your ventures online. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Well, Lee, this was really great to talk to you. And as I said, I'm sure this was not our last interview. And I'm looking forward to the future uh, ventures with you. Thank Fantastic. you for this great interview. And thank you for this little peek into a world that is <laughs> not known well enough. And uh, I hope some people will react to that as well. Thanks so much for being thank with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. And speak soon. Bye now. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. When I said that I would like to have Lee back on our podcast to talk more, also about other subjects we touched, I meant it. And I will try to make sure that this will happen in the not-so-far future. We did in this interview not even mention his knowledge about ancient Egypt's magic and spirituality, which is, of course, related to what he does at the British Museum. So watch out when he returns. Before I let you go now, just a quick outlook into the future. 
if all goes as planned, the next episode will appear on May the 9th. And as this will be a brand new interview and also the first episode I will do with my new co-host, Lena, I have decided that this present show will now end season two, like I said in my intro. So on May 9, we will start with a brand new season, season three. At this time, I'm still not 100% sure between two interview guests we chose, who will be the one you will hear on that day. So you will have to wait until I make an official announcement on Facebook, Twitter, and our website to let you know. But be assured, it will be a very interesting talk. For today, I say goodbye, friends and listeners. Thank you for listening to this and hopefully also the other interview-only episodes. It was, as always, great to have you with me. And I hope you enjoyed listening just as much as I did in producing it. For now, I hand you over to Wendy Rule's soothing voice or on YouTube to Sostakovich. Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.